I'm delighted to have this opportunity to speak to you about uh, the very important assertion of the text um, that was just read for us, John 17, verse 17, your word is truth. And I'm going to first say something about the context of that little phrase. Uh, and the reason I'm doing that is because the phrase comes to us embedded uh, in this chapter, uh, John chapter 17. And not only that, it comes embedded in um, a, a section that I think you could trace back a few chapters. The second half of the whole gospel uh, is moving us in a certain trajectory. And it's important to understand that if we're going to really grasp the significance of this uh, phrase, your word is truth. Now, some of you may already know that John 17 is often referred to as the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, that's a very accurate description. We see Jesus on his way to the cross. Uh, we have an opportunity to um, listen uh, to him, to eavesdrop, as it were, uh, on his uh, prayer, his fellowship with uh, his father. And he is uh, speaking to the Father, first of all, on his own behalf. He's making requests for himself. And then he is praying for his disciples. And then last but not least, he's praying for those who will believe in him through the proclamation of the apostolic uh, gospel. Now, this chapter, John 17, uh, is part of the last half of the book. The Gospel of John divides basically uh, into two parts. You've got chapters 1 through 12, some would say uh, uh, 1 to 11, but I'll say um, uh, tonight I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use 1 to 11, some would say 1 to 12, and then you've got 12 uh, to, the, uh, to the end of the book, chapter 21. Uh, the second half of the uh, Gospel of John uh, gives us the context for John chapter 17. Uh, if John 17 is the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ, the last half of the Gospel of John uh, tells us about the great uh, high priestly sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he is the, the great priest uh, described in terms of um, the book of Hebrews, as the priest in the order of Melchizedek. And he's the ultimate priest because he offers up himself once for all uh, to do away with the sins of those who believe in him, who call upon his name. Now the second half of the Gospel of John uh, really begins, I think, back in chapter 12. And uh, there we're told about his anointing. He's anointed in Bethany in preparation for everything that is to transpire, anointed uh, in preparation for his death. Then we're told about his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. Why is that significant? Because it reminds us that he is a king, but he's a king like no other. Uh, he's not a king in terms of the kings of this world. Uh, his politics is not the politics of this world. Uh, he comes... Uh, meek and mild as it were, uh, a different kind of king uh, who is going to conquer all uh, by going to the cross and by giving himself, uh, by dying and by uh, being raised again on the third day. Uh, he then makes a prediction of his death back in uh, chapter 12. And it's an interesting prediction uh, because he hints at the fact that his death is going to have what we could describe as epoch-changing uh, consequences. Uh, he says that if he is lifted up from the earth, he will draw all men to himself. And he connects his being lifted up from the earth, a reference to his, his glorification through crucifixion. He references uh, this lifting up also in terms of the defeat of Satan. He is going to drive out the prince of this world. And in driving him out, uh, there are going to be now open doors for the gospel. And uh, the work of God that had largely been restricted to the Jewish nation for so long 
is now going to go universal. And people from all the nations are going to uh, flood into this new assembly that uh, he is going to gather around himself. There is going to be a complete redefinition of Israel that is associated with him, uh, the true Israel. And then chapter 12 closes with uh, a sampling of his ministry. And it's a faithful ministry, even though there's opposition to the very end. If you read the, you know, the last part of chapter 12, you'll see that. He preaches the word of God and there are, you know, there are skeptics, there are opponents, there are people who uh, you know, do not want to listen to what he has to say, and yet he testifies. He has come uh, to do the Father's will. He's come to make known the revelation that has been given to him, and he does it to the end. Well, you come to chapter 13, and you have him washing the feet of his disciples. Uh, important lessons for them to learn that are conveyed in this manner. He then predicts his betrayal. Someone in the group of disciples is going to betray him. Someone who has walked with him for three years, someone who has listened to him preach and teach, someone who has seen his, his miracles of power is going to turn him in, is going to attempt to capitalize uh, on on this act of treachery. And if that's not bad enough, at the end of chapter 13, he speaks about the denials of a friend. A dear friend, uh, someone who was uh, prone to be the first to speak among the apostles. Uh, someone who was ready with the answer to the question, uh, whatever that question was. Someone who had vowed to stand firm when everybody else ran away. Uh, Jesus says, no, in this journey that I'm taking, even this dear friend is going to find himself in a position where he denies me. In other words, Jesus has to go the last leg of the journey to the cross alone. That is, humanly speaking. Chapters 14 through 16 are consecrated and concentrated. Wonderful chapters. And if we're going to understand what's going on in chapter 17, if we're going to understand this little phrase, your word is truth, we need to read and reread John 14, John 15, and John 16. Here is Jesus talking to a group of men who still, at this point in their relationship with Jesus, do not really understand what is about to transpire. We know that. John's going to bear witness to that at the end of his gospel. Two of the apostles who hightail it to the tomb on the first day of the week when they receive word that the tomb is empty, that Jesus is not there, are going to discover really for the first time the truth of his words, that he must rise from the dead, which indicates that when Jesus is speaking to them in that upper room in John 14, 15, and 16, they're still in a cloud of theological confusion. Oh, they've heard him talk about his death. He's done that numerous times. They've heard him talk about his resurrection, but they don't get it. They don't understand. And Jesus knows that. And yet in this upper room, uh, he speaks to them as a group of men who may not understand exactly what he is saying as he communicates it to them, but who will understand. Who in a relatively brief period of time are going to finally have their eyes opened and their ears unstopped and their hearts set on fire when the Spirit of God, the paraclete, the comforter, the advocate 
The one who comes in the place of Jesus. Jesus is going to go to the Father, but he's not going to leave these men alone. He's going to send the Spirit, and when the Spirit comes, ah, even these men will see, and they will understand. And then we get to John 17. And as I say, we have an opportunity to listen to Jesus as he prays. Listen to him as he prays for himself, verses 1 to 6. Listen to him as he prays for his disciples. And this is where our verse is located, in verses 7 through 19. And then listen to him as he, he sees beyond the disciples. He sees out into the future. And he sees those who will believe in him because of their testimony and, and their message. And he prays for them in verses 20 through 26. You see, the words, your word is truth, is embedded in these surrounding scriptures. And what is true here in this passage is true throughout the Bible. This context has interpretive implications, particularly when we remember that this entire gospel, as is true of the entire word of God, is a divinely inspired book, a spirit-given book. Yes, there are many human authors, about 40 who contributed to the writing of the scriptures over a period of 1,500 years. But behind those human authors over this span of time, the thing that enables us to, to study and, and restudy and never to fully come to an end of studying the Word of God, the thing that makes the Scripture so rich and so powerful is the fact that behind these human authors is God Himself superintending their work guiding them, not overriding their individual personalities, not necessarily, sometimes God does dictate exactly what he wants said, but that's not the normal course of things. They choose their words, their expressions. But God in his awesome sovereignty, without in any way violating their human freedom and responsibility, so works that when they have finished writing whatever their contribution is to Scripture, they have written precisely what they wanted to say, but more importantly, what God wanted to say. And because we're dealing with a book like that, context is important. In fact, if you ignore context, you're going to find yourself going off into all kinds of strange teaching and doctrine, and we've got ample examples of that uh, throughout church history and unfortunately even to this day. Well, looking then at, at verse 17, John 17, verse 17, what do we have? Well, I, I, I see three things. We have a request. We have means that are described. And uh, we have a a clarification, or perhaps we could, we could call it an amplification. What's the request? Well, the request is, is uh, there in the text. It's fairly straightforward. The request is sanctify them. This is Jesus praying to the Father. What does Jesus request of the Father? Jesus requests regarding his disciples that the Father would sanctify them. There are means described. Sanctify them how? He says, sanctify them by the truth, or in the truth, or through the truth. It could be translated in all of those ways. And then there is a clarification, there's an amplification. Sanctify them by the truth, in the truth, through the truth. And unless there be any question with regards to, well, what is that truth? Jesus says, as as clearly as he could possibly put it, your word is truth. 
Well, let's take those, those um, three parts of the verse and, and say a little bit more about them, and, and then I will move to some, some lessons, some implications, some applications uh, once we've done that. Although you'll find as you listen to me that uh, explaining the verse and, and applying the verse, they kind of run together sometimes. That's what happens when you're a, a pastor and a preacher, first of all, and then you end up in seminary and you're supposed to lecture. You're never quite sure what's a lecture and what's preaching. And uh, I prefer to do a little bit of both uh, wherever I go. Uh, the request, sanctify them. This is what Jesus asked for. Well, the word sanctify is part of what uh, uh, linguistic scholars would refer to as the holiness word group. And so to, to talk about sanctification is to talk about holiness. Now when uh, we talk about holiness and we think of holiness as it's presented in the Bible, the, the, the first person that we should think about, of course, is God himself. This is how God is presented to us in the scripture. God is holy. God is holy, holy, holy. We're, we're uh, given those words in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. And they're repeated in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. Uh, this is what heaven reverberates with, in one sense, the, the awesome uh, holiness of God. Well, what do we mean when we say that God is holy? Well, there are two things that, uh, that are involved. First of all, when we talk about the holiness of God, we're talking about the fact that God is unique. That God is in a class by himself. That, that it, compared with God, there, there, well, there's just nothing that, that measures up. There's nothing like him, no one like him. God is the uncreated creator, and everything else, everything else that exists has been created. And so in this very important sense, God is, is unique. He's one of a kind. He is, we could say, separate from the creation. There is God, and there is everything else. We are quite different than the animals because we are made in the image of God. But we are like the animals in that we are creatures that have been made by God. And in that sense, we've got more in common with the animals than we do with God because we are all creatures, us and the animals and everything else that God has made. God is in a category of his own. He is separate from the creation. But there's another aspect of God's holiness, and this is the aspect that people uh, usually think of first, and this is the idea that God is separate from defilement, separate from sin. There's a moral separateness to God. So to say that God is holy is to say, first of all, that he is absolutely transcendent, that he is glorious, that he is majestic, that there is no one like God. He's the uncreated creator. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Separate, separate, separate is he. There's nothing, no one like God. And we need to recover that in our day. One of the problems that we face in our day is that God, there are all these attempts to bring God down to our level as though he, he's just a bigger form of, of ourselves, but that's not the case. He is truly awesome. But he's not only unique in terms of, of who he is, his being, his majesty, but he is unique in that he is completely separate from sin. He's undefiled, undefilable in a class by himself. Now, when the word sanctify or this idea of holy is applied to people, it, it borrows something. There's something similar to, uh, to God, but it's, it's not the same because God is in a class by himself, but it, it's, it's related. When we talk about sanctifying people, what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about setting people apart. So when Jesus, when Jesus lifts his eyes to heaven, when he prays to the Father, when he says with regards to his disciples, sanctify them, what is he saying? 
Well, he's not in any way implying that they're divine. He's not implying that they are holy as God is holy. But what he is asking is that they be set apart. God is holy because he is set apart from his creation. God is holy because he is set apart from sin. Jesus is asking that his people might be set apart for God, for his Father. Jesus is describing a relationship, a position, a, a status that is theirs. He is asking God to, to separate these men from the world around them. To be separated unto God is simultaneously to be separated from the defilement of this world. It is to be, as it were, called out of this world into a relationship with God. That's why I say it's a relationship. It is a status, that's why the Bible can speak of, of Christians as holy ones, or the older uh, versions of the Bible talk about Christians as saints. In some religious tradition, a saint is someone who has lived a remarkable Christian life and has done at least one miracle, and, and after their death and an examination of their life, they are, they are declared to be saints by the hierarchy of the church. But that's not the case in the New Testament. In the New Testament, every single believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is a saint, and they become a saint the moment they are joined in faith to Jesus. What does that sainthood mean? It doesn't mean that they're all that they should be or all that they're going to be, but it means that they've been separated unto God. They are God's people. It describes this relationship. That's why in the Old Testament, uh, Israel the high priest, and various, say, temple objects, tabernacle objects, could be spoken of as holy. Well, in what sense are they holy? They are holy in that they are separate unto God. They are God's. They are for God's possession, for God's use. Uh, to be set apart for God presupposes, presupposes a sinful and fallen world. This is why Jesus has to pray this with regards to his disciples. Separate these men. Separate these men unto yourself. Separate them from the world. The world is a defiling place, a corrupting place. Father, I'm praying that you would, uh, that you would work in them so that they might grow in their relationship with you. And that as they grow in their relationship with you, they might be, become more and more pure and consecrated to you. And eventually that they might be freed from sin all together. Now, the fact that Jesus prays like this, the fact that he says, sanctify them, uh, reveals to us that this is something very important. I mean, when you, when you are approaching your death, you uh, would think that people would push away everything that's peripheral and, and focus on the most important matters. Jesus, of course, is going to the cross, and Jesus uh, knows that he's going to the cross, but that's not the end of the story. He's going to rise again. He's already predicted that. But nonetheless, as he goes to the cross, he's very concentrated on what he's doing, and so it's significant that he says, Father, sanctify these men. Set them apart. Set them apart for yourself. Work in them by your grace and by your power that they might be holy as you are in terms of your separation from sin, that they might be useful in your service, that they might be fit ambassadors of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Furthermore, the fact that he, he requests this of the Father indicates that he sees this sanctifying work as a work of God. This is something that God must do. And if God doesn't do it, it's not going to be done. Such is the power of sin such as the presence of sin in the lives even of God's people, that if God does not intervene, uh, it is a hopeless situation. And so he prays, sanctify them. And the context uh, also reveals that this prayer of sanctification is based uh, to some degree on what he is going to do. Well, I shouldn't say to some degree. It is based in a very important way on what he's going to do. In, the, in uh, verse 19, John 17, verse 19, Jesus talks about sanctifying himself. Jesus is, is not talking about becoming sinless, as though he is sinful. Jesus is talking about the, the fact that he is setting himself 
uh, a part to do the work that the Father has called him to do. And what is that? He is on his way to the cross to make atonement for sin, to make atonement for the sins of these men. He is sanctifying himself. And his sanctifying work, he says, uh, is related to, these, uh, to the sanctification of his, of his disciples. The reason I sanctify myself is that they might be sanctified, that they might do the work that you have called them to do. And then just one last thing I wanted to mention before we leave this, uh, this request. Because of who is praying to whom, this is a prayer that's going to be answered. Don't forget that. It's got tremendous practical significance we'll get to in a few minutes. Because of who, Jesus, is praying to whom, the Father, this prayer is going to be answered. Why? Because the Father loves the Son. Because the Father has entrusted these men into the Son's hands. Jesus has already made mention of that at the beginning of the, of the prayer. You have given me these men. You have given them to me. And I will fulfill your purpose in doing just that. This prayer will be answered. These disciples will be sanctified. And we'll see as we think about the larger passage, those who believe in Jesus, like the disciples, will be sanctified. God the Father will hear the prayers of his Son, the one he loves, the one with whom he is well pleased. Well, then he speaks about means. The request, sanctify them. If you were to ask the question, how? Jesus would answer by the truth, in the truth, through the truth. This is also of great pastoral and practical significance. How so? What it tells us is that God sanctifies indirectly. Now, I've already said that the fact that Jesus is praying for the sanctification of his disciples indicates that it is a work of God. God sanctifies. That's why he's asking God to do just that. But when this little phrase, by the truth, is added to that request, we come to understand, Jesus wants us to understand, that God sanctifies us indirectly. Not directly, but indirectly. In other words, he doesn't do everything for us. Sanctification, this process of being separated from the world unto God, this, this process of growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. This process of putting off the old and putting on the new. This is a condition, this is a state, this is a reality that is realized by, through, and in the truth. It doesn't happen by magic. It isn't received as the result of a spiritual experience. There have been many people in the history of the church who've taught something like this, that when it comes to sanctification, what you've got to do is you've got to seek it from God. And, uh, and if God is pleased to give it, he will give you this, this blessing. And when he gives you this blessing, from that point on, you'll now exist in kind of a higher plane of spiritual of spirituality and spiritual life, and you'll be done with the old struggles and, and, uh, and on you go towards glory. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, sanctify them through the truth. Now, without a doubt, experiences are connected to this process of sanctification. But it happens within the realm of God's truth. It doesn't happen all at once. It doesn't happen suddenly. It doesn't happen completely in this life. All of those things are important. It doesn't happen all at once. Don't let anybody tell you that. Don't ever pay uh, anybody money to, to give you the secret of, of uh, instant sanctification. It doesn't happen that way. It's through the truth. It doesn't happen 
suddenly. Oh yes, sometimes there's a tremendous change in a, in a person's life and perspective. We don't want to deny that, and that's a wonderful, it's wonderful when that, when that does happen. But uh, even when there's a sudden change, it doesn't mean that all that God is going to do in that life has, has, has been done. Uh, there is always uh, much more to do, and it's never complete in this life. The one who says he has no sin, according to this same apostle, when he writes in his first epistle, lies and is not telling the truth. No, there's no such thing as sinful perfection, a sinless rather perfection, this side of, of glory. What Jesus is telling us here is that this sanctification by the truth does not negate spiritual warfare or struggle or personal application, the personal application of the truth of God to our lives. We see that everywhere in the New Testament. Take passages like Romans chapter 6 and talks about you know, putting to death the deeds of the body. It talks about declaring war uh, upon the, uh, the sin that remains. It talks about the fact that, that there are many struggles. You go into chapter 8, for instance, you think about that, that great chapter that, that, that talks about the fact that uh, you know, there are people, you know, who can bring a charge against God's elect? Well, why is, he, why is he even talking like that? Well, because he's very aware of the fact that Christians are conscious many times in their life of many charges against them. They're conscious of their failings. They're conscious of their sins. They're conscious that if God should mark iniquity, they would not be able to stand. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Well, the answer is ultimately no one. Why? Well, because God has intervened. But the struggle is real. And, and Romans 8 needs to be written because Christians are struggling. They, they need to be reassured that in the end, nothing can separate them from the love of God that is manifest in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Well, because sometimes we feel like, like that is the case. Or you think of uh, Ephesians chapter 6. Put on the whole armor of God. Why do we need to do that? Well, because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realms. And we need to be clothed in the armor of God. We need to pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Yes. Sanctify them through the truth. By means of the truth. God uses the truth of his word. The truth of the word brought home by the Holy Spirit. To sanctify his people. Then there's this clarification. It's really what I'm supposed to be speaking on tonight. This little phrase, your word is truth. But you see it. To me, it has a richness when we see it in context. Your word is truth. Sanctify them by the truth, and lest there be any doubt as to what exactly Jesus has in mind, he removes that doubt by saying, I'm talking about your word. Now, when he says your word, he's not talking about some esoteric, which is just a fancy way of saying some some secret word of knowledge that's known only to some spiritual elite, the initiated, that somehow unlocks the key to the deeper Christian life. No, when Jesus is talking about your word, God's word, he is talking about the word of God, all of the word of God, from Genesis to revelation. But you've probably heard that before, and you've probably already guessed that. I think there's, a, there's more to be said. There's a nuancing here that's very, very important. There's a glory here that we need to bring out. And I say, well, your word is the word of God, all the word of God. Well, obviously, Genesis to Revelation. But this is Jesus praying. This is Jesus at this moment in redemptive history. This is Jesus who, if we go through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we listen to his teaching, we discover that the word of God comes alive in the person of Jesus. He is, after all, the word made flesh. 
Uh, he is the one who, who uh, is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. The Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures look forward to him. He comes in fulfillment of them. He breathes new life into them. He shows us what they really mean, what they're really uh, anticipating, uh, and, and what God is going to do for his people. It's not just the word of God. It's not just Genesis, for instance, to Malachi, thinking of the Hebrew Bible, uh, in and of itself in history. But it's Genesis to Malachi as it, as it leads us to Jesus, as it, as it reveals to us who he is and what he's come to do. It's that word. It's that word that he taught his disciples over and over again. A word which I've already said they had trouble grasping, but a word that they are going to grasp when the Spirit comes. It is this holy word of God, as, as articulated by Jesus, as embodied by Jesus, as proclaimed by Jesus. It is this word through which God sanctifies his people. It is the word of the Father. It is the word of the Son. And as he's already indicated in chapters 14, 15, and 16, it's going to become the word of the Spirit. What's going to mark the beginning of the, the new covenant age? Not to say the Spirit wasn't involved prior to that. Of course he was. The Spirit's very involved throughout the Old Testament. But what's going to mark the beginning of the new covenant age? An abundant outpouring of the Spirit of God on the day of Pentecost. What the Old Testament anticipated. That in the days to come, in the last days, I'm going to pour my Spirit out upon all flesh. This is exactly what happens. And one particular group of people who enjoyed the ministry of the Spirit were these apostles. And these apostles saw and understood what Jesus had been talking about, but they had been unable to grasp. And Jesus knew that. I mean, in the upper room, he said to them, I've got many things that I want to say to you, but you're not able to bear them right now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will lead you into the truth. He will take what is mine and he will give it to you. You'll understand what I'm talking about. And you will be able to, to expound who I am and, and what I have done. So what is this word? Well, it is the word of God. The word of the Father, the word of the Son, the word of the Holy Spirit. It is the word written down by God's authorized apostles. It is described in Hebrews as a living and an active word, a powerful word. It will not return empty. This is the word. Now, there are a few applications I wanted to share with you tonight. Number one, if we as a church, and I'm speaking now not specifically of this church, but of the church of Jesus Christ, if, if we as a church or individuals within the church abandon the word of God centered in Jesus Christ, interpreted by the apostles, we will not know the sanctifying work of God. You see what Jesus has connected here? Sanctification, which, which by the way is not is not just becoming more and more holy, but sanctification is, is being separated unto God. It, it, it is loving the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. I can't think of a better definition of sanctification than that. That's what it is. That sanctification does not take place apart from the Word. The word of the Father, the word of the Son, the word of the Holy Spirit. Abandoning the word takes many different forms. When we pay lip service to the word, but that's all we do, we are abandoning God's word. When we minimize that word, we say, well, yes, yes, I know it says that here and there, but... We're out of sync with society. That's not how people think. We're never going to you know, win friends and influence people if we, if, we, if we go down that line. We're abandoning the word. If we relativize that word, 
we're abandoning the word. If we domesticate the word, you say, well, how do you domesticate the word? The very, the very use of the word, uh, domesticate, you know, perhaps reminds us of domesticated animals. Well, you know what that means. You mean animals that have been tamed. Well, you know, there's lots of times when people, even good Christian people, I think are guilty of domesticating the word. We can all do that. Taming it. Getting it under control. It is a living and it is a powerful word. And, and, and sometimes it makes us a little uncomfortable. We domesticate the word when we selectively preach it. We're supposed to preach the whole counsel of God, not part of it. And we're supposed to preach the whole counsel of God because we need the whole counsel of God if we're going to be sanctified. If we're going to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we need it all. Not just part of it. Not just our favorite passages. We need all of it. We domesticate the word of God when we limit our exposure to it. Well, a little bit of the word now and then. A verse. You know, most days. And that's not enough. We domesticate the word of God when we read it superficially. Oh my, there's so much superficial reading of the word of God. I tell my students, do you realize that just because someone comes quoting a scripture verse to, to you doesn't mean they know what they're talking about. Every heretic comes quoting scripture. Even the devil himself can quote scripture. What's the problem with his quotation? It's, it's superficial. He takes it out of context. He uses it to his own advantage. We can abandon the word of God by deliberately misrepresenting it. Now, I've got to watch my time. But I've got an article here. I got, showed up in my email box this past week called The Idolatrous Doctrine of Inerrancy. And um, I'm just, I, I just want to read a couple of uh, paragraphs uh, from it. Uh, the writer says, digging into the doctrine of inerrancy has been an eye-opener over the past couple of months. I'll recap two thoughts from recent articles as the foundation of this article's main thrust. Number one, we cannot read the Gospels honestly without accepting that Jesus broke, reinterpreted, and overrode the law as part of his teaching and ministry. I have to conclude then that though Jesus loved the scriptures, meditated on them, memorized them, and quoted them, he did not see Old Testament writings as inerrant in any way that modern Christians do. More on this, here's the link. I'll spare you the link. Number two, the notion of biblical inerrancy was not preached or even perceived in biblical times, nor for the majority of church history. It will surprise many to learn that the false doctrine of inerrancy is a modern invention concocted in the 19th century in response to Charles Darwin's The Origin of the Species, 1859, in order to defend the literal reading of Genesis and oppose the important scientific discoveries of that time. The doctrine of inerrancy was a fearful reaction to uncomfortable questions, giving people permission to switch off their brains as a purported act of service to God. This was further compounded in 1978 when hundreds of conservative evangelical leaders crafted the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy in order to counter what they perceived as liberal uh, or non-literal interpretations of the Bible that were emerging. I believe, he says, inerrancy is a false and carnal doctrine imposed on the church to keep us from thinking too deeply about difficult questions. It stems from fear, lest we come up with even more challenging questions. But the Bible was never meant to be a legal, literal text. We can't rely on it for precision or full instruction. It is not an unquestionable manual for life, but instead reflects the perspective and limitations of each writer. Don't get me wrong, he says, I love the Bible. It's beautiful, inspiring, full of seed power for personal growth. It overflows with wisdom and draws us to love when... Uh, but only when interpreted to us by the Holy Spirit. We have tried to make the Bible God, unquestionable, perfect, permanent, rather than use it as a resource to draw near to God himself. We've made it a prison and thrown away the key, referring to exalt the word of God over the living word of God. 
I'm reading that because I believe that that kind of perspective has permeated Christianity more than we might like to admit. I think there's a lot of people that think along those lines, even within the confines of the, of the church. I could you know, take a lot more time and refute uh, every, almost every, everything he says in there. It's just nonsense. But think about what he said in light of our text. What is Jesus? What does Jesus, what does the Son of God, on his way to the cross, speaking to his Father, sanctify them through the truth? What does he say? Your word is truth. That sounds an awful lot like, I believe that word. See, Jesus isn't saying your word is true. He's saying your word is truth. Say, what's the difference? Jesus is saying, uh, not only is the word true, but it's the standard of truth. Everything else that's out there is to be measured against the word of God. Who am I going to believe, Jesus or this writer? This writer says, oh, the, the word of God, it's, it's, it, it's, it's, it's wonderful. It's got artistic uh, you know, features to it. it, it it's uh, full of wisdom and so forth, you know, provided you interpret it uh, correctly. But it's not the final word. Jesus says your word is true. I remember when I was in university after uh, I'd done a um, Bachelor of Theology and I went to a, one of the public universities here in Ontario and um, took some religious study courses and I, I ran into, um, you know, it's one thing to hear liberal thought um, being explained to you by a conservative uh, professor. It's another thing to go and hear it taught by someone who actually believes it. And uh, so for the first time really in my, in my life, I you know, was sitting in class with professors that just openly mocked the idea of the Bible being the word of God. In fact, in one class, it was very similar to this argument. You, you evangelicals have made a God out of the Bible. We don't worship a book, we worship the living God. Sounds very sanctimonious up front. But the problem is that the only access that we have to Jesus is through the book. And the Jesus that we find in the book says, your word is truth. When all of the, you know, all the, everything's on the line. Right? This isn't just him theorizing about scripture. This is him going on his way to the cross. Father, sanctify these men. There's a job to be done. It's a job that you've given me. It's a job that will continue on through them in the ministry of the spirit. Sanctify them. Separate them unto yourself. Separate them from the world. Do it through the truth. Through the truth of your word. Well, I say when I was sitting in those classes, I eventually came on a book written by uh, Wenham. Last name was Wenham. And basically, the argument of the book was, what's Jesus' view of scripture? And I personally, it was just very helpful to me. And it was basically about this verse. What's Jesus' view of Scripture? His view of Scripture is that it's truth. Not just true, it's truth. We measure everything else by it. Well, very quickly, we will be powerless if we abandon the Scriptures. We'll be powerless when it comes to evangelistic witness. Because in John 17, there is an explicit connection between sanctification, that is, setting people apart from God, bringing them into a relationship with God where they more and more love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's an explicit connection between that and between God's word and evangelism. See, this kind of sanctification is part of the gospel message. God doesn't send his son into the world just to provide hell insurance. God sends his son into the world to bring people into a relationship with himself. He, he sends his son into the world to, to, to bring about a, a, a transformation which, when it is done, results in a new creation, a new heavens and earth, the home of righteousness, and we feel comfortable in that home of righteousness because God has sanctified us through his truth. The truth about Jesus. The truth about what he's done on the cross. The truth about his resurrection. The truth about the Holy Spirit. His truth. We won't be able to answer the ideologies 
that are eating the church alive if we wander from the truth of the word. I've mentioned already that God's word is the standard. That means we measure everything against that word, including the assured findings of science, including psychology, including, in our day, the whole area of gender studies. God's word tells us what is right and wrong. And God's word explains why things are the way they are. It tells us that that he made men and women in his own image, and he made them upright, and he made them male and female. But they rebelled against him. They fell into sin, and that sin has corrupted the entirety of their being. It's not that they're absolutely corrupt, but every facet of their being, all their, their, their thinking, their feeling, their desires have been corrupted by sin. Not everybody is corrupted in exactly the same way. This corruption manifests itself in different ways, but we're dealing with a, with a, with a human race uh, made in God's image. But the thing that people don't mention today is, yes, it's made in God's image, but it's fallen. And so as we find it now, it's in a mess. It's corrupted. It, it, things aren't functioning the way they ought to be. And of course, what our world tells us is, well, you just got to accept that. That's not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We got, we got something better than that. that that's, a, that's really a horrible place to leave people. Oh, just accept it. Just, just live in that corruption. Just, just live in, in, in that dysfunction. That's not what the gospel says. The gospel comes along and tells us, hey, something has been done. Jesus died, and his death is powerful. And Jesus rose from the dead, and that resurrection is powerful. And as we are joined to him by the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the resurrected Christ begins to flow through us. And sure enough, if it flows, it will make changes. Now, I said it's never instantaneous. It's never, you know, sort of all at once. Uh, It's never complete in this life. But having said that, it is real. It is real. And that's what we hold out to people when we preach the gospel. We come to people and we say, listen, God sanctifies through the truth. You need to immerse yourself in his truth. You need to soak in his truth. You need to to have your mind purified by his truth. His truth needs to uh, take control of your will. You say, well, yes, but that's where where the problem lies. My problem is not truth. My problem is a lack of power. No, that's not what scripture says. The scripture says your problem is, is a rejection of the truth. You need to believe the truth. You need to believe what God says about you. You need to believe about what, what, what God has done in Jesus Christ. You need to believe that, that there is uh, the opportunity for substantial healing in this life. But you've got to be prepared now to, to, to bend your will and to repent of your uh, wrong thinking and your wrong desires and everything else and surrender yourself to him. But this process comes as, as, we, as we hear the truth. As we meditate upon that truth, as we pray over that truth, as we act upon that truth. This is how God does it. I mean, I think a lot of people are looking for some lightning bolt to come out of heaven. And, 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 and uh, usually it's a lightning bolt to come out of heaven, deliver them from one or two sins that are particularly grievous and irritating and, and seem to manifest themselves over and over again. But God's, you see, it's, it's possibly delivered from one or two kind of sins that bother us and still be far from loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
God doesn't just come to deliver us from you know, this sin or that sin that's particularly a problem to us. He's come to bring us into a relationship with himself. And as we enter into that relationship, and as we grow in that relationship, and as the truth of who God is, and what he has done in Jesus, and, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit begins to work. Wonder of wonders. Not only do those one or two grievous things start to settle down and take their proper place, but we find ourselves in the process of transformation. Wonderful transformation. Pastorally, as I've said, God's word gives us, gives us hope because God is at work. Uh, Jesus is praying for the sanctification of his people. And as you see, you know, you see at the end of, the, of John 17, what he basically prays for the disciples, he goes on to pray for those who will believe through their, through their message. He's praying this for all of his people, that we'd be sanctified. And pastorally, if you're you know, a pastor, you're in a situation where you're counseling someone, this is, this is where the hope is found. Of course, it will bring us into conflict with the world, the flesh, and the devil. They'll be pushed back. You can be sure of it. But it is God's truth through which he works and through which he brings salvation and through which he deepens our walk with him, through which he gives us a victory over sin that can be such a snare. So let me just encourage you then to do what you've heard people say many times before. Read the word. Study the word. Memorize the word. Hide the word in your heart. Look at life through the lens of God's word. Compare scripture with scripture. Remember Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord, who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Remember that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of the word of God and that through his ministry and the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the apostles, we are given everything that we need for life and godliness. This is the Christian gospel. This is what needs to be proclaimed again in these days in this land. There is a God who sanctifies there is a God who takes those who have been ruined by sin and makes them new. It doesn't happen all at once, but it, it surely does uh, begin to happen when they are called uh, from death into life, into a relationship with himself. And he who has begun the good work will carry it on to completion. And in the end, the prayer of Jesus will be answered. And we will, uh, we will glorify the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, in that new heavens and new earth, and we'll say, oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for that which purifies and, and sanctifies me. And why does it do so? Because it, it takes us back to the Son, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, and all that has been done for us by them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we echo the words of Jesus, sanctify us. Sanctify us, Lord. Set us apart for yourself. Yes, we can be so concerned about this or that, but here we're reminded of the bigger picture. Sanctify us, set us apart for yourself. Lord, fill our vision, fill our minds, fill our hearts. Sanctify us through your truth, through the truth of the word. And the word that has been preserved down through all of these years. The word that you have given through those who have been carried along as they wrote. The word that is still true even today, in spite of the attacks that are so often made upon us, upon it. Sanctify us by the truth. And Lord, may we never forget the fact 
when we're not sure of anything else, your word is truth. Amen.